Welcome to Union Church. My name is Aaron. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I loved what Dana said at the beginning, whether you're coming from a place of the highest highs, and you've had a wonderful week and a great season, and the Lord's been good to you, and you've been receiving His goodness, and now you're here to rejoice. You're welcome. Uh, I suspect that many of you... Um, are in a place uh, of a little bit of a lower low and if you are at that place you are welcome also and uh, we are glad that you're here and uh, we are glad that we can gather that you can receive God's word that you can fellowship with God's people that you can sing God's praises and uh, we just hope that and pray that uh, this would be a time and a place for you to be able to receive and to rest and to be renewed and to be reminded of God's goodness and God's provision in our lives um, and uh, all of that through God's word and with God's people. So you are welcome here and we thank you for being here. Um, you can turn to Romans chapter 13. Uh, Romans chapter 13. Um, we're taking a little bit of a break from our series in Second Peter. Um, I'm getting a little bit of feedback Dana, if you can uh, check that out. Um, uh, we've been doing better on our sound, by the way, thankfully. Uh, we've had, we had sound issues week after week, but there, our sound guys uh, and AV team has really shaped that up and kind of figured out the bug, so we're thankful for that. We're gonna take a break from our um, series in Second Peter. We're gonna jump into Romans 13. I do wanna say, though, this week you may have heard, um, uh, I think 16 or 20 Marines on a training mission um, had an accident in the sea near San Clemente Island. Eight of them survived. I think one is confirmed dead and the rest are missing, and the search has now stopped and uh, so obviously tragic news and heartbreaking and devastating and I just want to have us and ask us as a church family to be in prayer for those families that's I think those eight are uh, end up being confirmed as uh, having passed away then that would be nine uh, young men who have lost their lives in a training accident and that's nine families with probably hundreds of people affected um, in total. And uh, I just want us as a church family to pray for those families. Uh, and as well, uh, we're going to try to put out some feelers and see if there's any of those families that are local that don't have a church home and if there's any needs we can meet. And so we'd love to have um, us as a church just step up to the plate and uh, meet those needs if that is um, a reality. And so we're going to pray for them right now. And I would invite you to pray for them as well on your own this week. Bow your heads with me and we'll do that before we get into God's word. Father God, we, we thank you for your goodness. We acknowledge you are a good God. We acknowledge also that you are a sovereign God. Um, we also confess, God, we don't always understand um, why things happen the way they do. Uh, we do know that there's sin in the world and that sin has affected all of the world. It has corrupted the world at every level and it has brought in death and sadness and sorrow and tragedy. And uh, we have seen and heard and have witnessed some of that tragedy this week um, among these young men who have died and their families who are now grieving. And God, uh, we just want to pray for them. We pray that those men knew Jesus. We pray that their families will take comfort in you, the great comforter, uh, the great physician who heals all wounds, especially spiritual wounds. We pray, God, for the wives, for the children, for the parents, for the siblings of those young men who have passed away. We pray, God, that they would turn to you, Jesus. If they don't know you, we pray that you'd bring the right people, the right person, the right voice, the right message, the right sermon, the right Bible verse, whatever it is, and however you'd like to 
save them and uh, bring them into relationship with you. We just ask you to do that. And we ask that they would turn to you for help and for provision and for healing, Jesus. And help us as a church to meet needs. If, if, if there's a possibility of, of ministering and serving uh, to any of those families who are local, we just pray that you'd give us those opportunities, God, and allow us to be used by you in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can open up again to Romans chapter 13, and uh, we are going to take a break from our series in Second Peter. I've been getting a lot of calls and questions and having a lot of conversations with this constant um, kind of shifting and evolution of, of where we're at uh, as a church, in terms of the church at large in our nation, in our state, in our county right now. Uh, the guidance is continually changing, loosens up, tightens up. It's kind of going, gone back and forth over the last few months, and People are getting frustrated and um, people genuinely just have questions and are confused. And so uh, I, I felt it was necessary for us to just take a break from our series that we just started. We finished First Peter, got started in Second Peter. And I just wanted to take a break uh, just for one week and uh, dive into some of these issues and revisit civil authority uh, and civil disobedience, what those look like, uh, what that means for the church, and, 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 and what authority the state has and when the church should disobey that authority. I think these are important questions. And I just want to help give us some handles so we can have a framework for thinking through these issues in this time and season in the right way. If we think back on the timeline of events in our state since this pandemic began, uh, we'll notice a few key dates, many other dates um, that I'm not going to mention, a few key ones that you'll recall. March 19th, uh, California began sheltering in place. And at that point, churches ceased from meeting altogether. This moved to online services. Uh, Sunday services ceased, but also small group services or small group gatherings ceased for several months afterward until early June. Early June, uh, limited gatherings were permitted with strict number of restrictions if you were indoors or space restrictions if you were indoors. That lasted for a few weeks and by the time early July came around, there were further restrictions not only on when, where, the church can meet, but also on how and what the church can do. And apparently a, no singing, uh, or I should say a singing ban was implemented, I think early July, mid-July rather, early July. And by mid-July, there were now restrictions again on indoor gatherings. Okay, so it's kind of back and forth and back and forth. We can meet, we can't meet, we can do this, we can't do that. And this has caused a lot of questions in the minds of, of believers, and rightfully so. It's good to ask questions in seasons like this. It's good to do our homework. It's good to look at Scripture and see what Scripture says. These are all good things. Many Christians have had questions, and many have responded in very different ways. Some have responded just by complying, which I think was most people at the beginning, most churches at the beginning, we have done the best we can to comply with state guidance. Uh, I think that's the wisest thing to do. We'll see that scripture tells us to do that. Many have responded with compliance. Many have responded, um, particularly as things have progressed, uh, with rebellion and defiance. Some people, there are some individuals who just 
have a knee-jerk reaction to rebellion, and that's just what they're going for, and any chance that we get, we're just going to defy and push back. Okay, so that's one type of defier. But there are other Christians who have really thought through this thoroughly and carefully and biblically, and as time went on and moved forward, they, they kind of drew a line in the sand and said, we feel now that the state has exceeded its authority and thoughtfully, biblically, humbly, we're going to now disobey that. You, you may have read Grace Community Church's statement uh, last week, a big, huge, influential church in LA or John MacArthur pastors, and they decided that they were no longer going to listen to the government's guidance. Uh, I, I had the benefit of being on a conference call uh, with Pastor John and a few other pastors, and he was explaining to us that the government actually had put restrictions on them because they were so large that they couldn't meet at all, indoors or outdoors. So, unique situation. They were faced with either not meeting at all, not just with some guidance or restrictions, but they could not meet at all, and so they chose to disobey. The question for us is, how do we think through these issues? I mean, this is a very relevant conversation for us to be having, and we have to think, here's what I want us to do, we have to think biblically through these issues. We must not think emotionally. We must not think politically. And let me say it this way, we must not even primarily think constitutionally. And what I mean by that is the Constitution, as good as it is, we should obey it and point to it, but it's not our main authority. It's not our main authority. Scripture is our main authority. Scripture is our main authority. So when the Constitution gives us the right to say whatever we want, however we want, to whoever we want, Christians realize we're glad we live in a place where we have complete freedom of speech. We also realize that Christians don't have freedom of speech. Christians cannot say whatever we want, whenever we want, and whatever tone we want. We actually are commanded to speak in love, to speak in ways that build up, to speak in ways that are truthful and not deceptive. You see what I'm saying? Scripture is our main authority. Nothing else is our main authority. So we must first and most think biblically when it comes to these issues. The first thing for us to investigate in Scripture, and some of this, we, we covered this a bit in 1 Peter. Um, I'm going to do a little bit more of a thorough um, exposition uh, of this topic today. So some of this will be reviewed. Some of it might be a little bit new. I hope it's refreshing and helpful for all of us. The first thing for us is what authority does the state possess? What authority does the state possess? Romans 13. We're not doing a thorough, full exposition of Romans 13. Um, we would teach this a little bit differently, uh, a little bit more thoroughly, and, and draw out some more details uh, if we were preaching through the book. For our purposes, we're just going to kind of do a cursory overview of Romans 13, 1 through 7. I'm going to read this text for us. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, be afraid, 
For he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. What authority does the state possess? Here's the main and simplest way I want us to think about that. The state has the authority to preserve life. The state has the authority to preserve life. That's the main sphere of the state's authority. This would be civil order, okay? The organizing of society, creating laws, maintaining peace, all of that is within the realm, the sphere, the circle of the church's authority. This would include protecting law keepers and punishing law breakers. Paul says, we just read in Romans 13, that the state has the power of the sword that's punishing law breakers. This includes authority that exceeds normal boundaries in, in cases of emergency, of national emergency. Okay, you think World War II. In World War II, 20% of the men that went to war were drafted. That's, that's a major, major power that the state exercised in a time of national emergency. We think pandemic where the state has additional powers and exercises powers in a way that they normally don't, at least here in America. So that's power and authority in unique times in cases of public emergency. And Paul says that the state's authority is actually instituted by God. The state and its authority are instituted by God. Here's the way we should think through that. The government, government is actually a gift. Government is actually a gift. Now you may be thinking, look, I was at the DMV this week and trust me, government's not a gift. I can assure you it's not a gift. And I get where you're coming from. But overall, listen, overall, we live in a fallen world, things are messed up and you, we get that when we go to the DMV. We, that's very clear. It's a very good theological lesson on total depravity. We all understand that. However, we also understand that God's intention in creating government is actually giving it to us as a gift. Trust me, you don't want to live in a state of anarchy. All right, so, so the laws that we have, the social structures we have, I'm not saying we agree with all of it. I'm not saying all of us need to just love government and just more government and we love government. That's not what I'm saying. Okay, so don't, don't hear me say something I'm not saying. What I'm saying is what Paul says that the basic idea of government to kind of govern the land, create laws, protect citizens, punish evildoers, that is a gift. That is a gift. We need to understand it as a gift and we need to receive it as a gift. And thank the Lord that we don't have to defend our own homes and churn our own butter and do all of these things that we really don't have the capability of doing and not having to do all these things makes life much more joyful, I would say. We have lots of protection and benefits. So the government is a gift, but here's the problem for us. By and large, we are a people who do not really like the idea of authority. I mean, we are a nation that it, that was founded in rebellion, it kind of runs in our veins. It's part of our public awareness and conscience. 
We can look throughout history, after all, and observe many instances of oppression and corruption in the state. Many instances. We can look at our own government today and point out instances of corruption or injustice, hypocrisy. We can look at our own nation and see policies and laws that are twisted and evil. We can look at at restrictions right now and guidance for church life or for business life. Some of you are out of a job. You don't like that, and maybe you don't agree with it. We can look at personal life and and, and all these restrictions that are on us in, in multiple areas of life right now, and we can disagree with all of those things, and we can point out the hypocrisy within all of those things in the sense that Churches have restrictions, hair salons have restrictions, all kinds of other businesses have restrictions, and yet nobody says anything when a few thousand people get together to complain about their issues. We, we understand that that is hypocritical. Whatever we think about those things politically, we understand there's an inconsistency there, and that's frustrating. It's okay to be honest about that. We do inhabit a deeply broken world and sin has corrupted us and the world at every level. And part of this, when we see corruption and injustice and inconsistency and hypocrisy, we do have to realize at a theological level, don't hear me say academic, theological level at a biblical level, that is a sin problem. Sin has corrupted our world at every level. However, We must not use examples of corruption or injustice or hypocrisy as a license for us to throw off the yoke of the state whenever we feel like disagreeing. We must not do that. What we must do is seek to operate and think biblically. Okay, so what authority does the state have? It has authority over the preservation of life. That's what God has created the state for, to preserve life, to order society, for the flourishing of man. Number two, is the state's authority binding for Christians as we seek to worship God and know Jesus and love Jesus and do what he's commanded us to do? Is the state's authority binding for us in the sphere of the spiritual? Look again with me at Romans chapter 13. Verse 1, let every person. Like what does that mean in the Greek? It means every person. Every person subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Verse five, Romans 13, therefore one must be in subjection. One must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath for the sake of conscience, but because of this, you must also pay taxes for the authorities and ministers of God attending this very thing. Verse seven, pay taxes to all whom taxes are own revenue, honor, respect. Okay, we get the picture. This means that we must obey the law, right? Christians must obey the law. We Christians are not above the law. We must cooperate with the government. We must seek to be good citizens in the eyes of the government. We're responsible to do all of those things. 
We must pay taxes. Uh, Paul says that twice here in Romans 13. Because of this, you also pay taxes. Verse 6. Verse 7. Pay taxes. Pay to all... You... Uh, Pay what is owed to all whom it's owed to. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Taxes is twice in there. I mean, gosh. Some of you don't like that. Jesus himself says, look, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus himself paid his taxes. So here's what this means. We need to be good citizens, obey the law, follow the government. You know, in general, I mean, we, we as Christians are responsible to do all of those things to, to the detail of paying taxes, Verse 7, in addition, Paul says this. Give respect to whom respect is owed and honor to whom honor is owed. So we must obey the laws, be compliant, be good citizens, pay our taxes. We must also honor and respect government authority. These are not my words. These are scripture's words. These are Paul's words. These are the Holy Spirit's words. We must also honor and respect those in authority. Now listen, I want to qualify this because I know I need to. This does not mean, this does not mean that, that we have to agree with everything our government does. doesn't mean that at all. This does not mean that we can't be vocal. We, we can be vocal. Thankfully, we do live in a country where we can actually be vocal. This does not mean that we can't seek change. We should seek change when necessary. It does mean that we must do so in a way that is respectful. Those who lead government are human beings created in God's image with full dignity, value, and worth. It's easy from a distance to dehumanize people. We need to remind ourselves they're humans just like us. They're sinful just like us. They're created in God's image just like us. They're they're created to reflect God's image to the world just like us. They have value just like us. We need to treat people, even in public positions, as human beings. They're created in God's image, and their role and their position is instituted by God. Okay, these are clear scriptural instructions. I can't think of a time where I have heard so much gossip and slander and motive assigning to public leadership. It's really unbecoming of Christians. I'm not saying we can't be critical in a good way. I'm not saying we can't be vocal. I'm not saying we can't work for change. I am saying, since when did slander become okay? When did slander become okay for Christians? It's like, oh, because they're in a position of public authority, so therefore, you know, we're allowed to slander them. It's like, no, we're not. We're actually not. The worst part about this is that when we participate in these things, we look just like the world. We look just like the world. I'm afraid that it's hard. If it's difficult, if the world looks at the church and itself, when it comes to political issues or issues that are controversial, in the news, with our current season. And if the world can't really see a difference, like a a separation, a division between the church and the world, I would just humbly suggest that that is a major problem. That's a major problem. 
Paul wrote Romans 13. Peter wrote 1 Peter 2. In the context of being citizens and inhabitants under a state that could be far more oppressive than anything you and I have ever experienced in our lives up to this point. Rome was actually a great place to live. The Roman Empire was a great empire to be a part of, all things considered in terms of an ancient empire. That, that was the place to be. But I'll tell you what, they, when they wanted to, they could flex their authority muscle in ways that you would not even believe. And they wrote these letters telling us in detail to respect and honor government authority in a time where if they did the wrong thing in the wrong way or upset the wrong person just enough, they would have major consequences, major, way worse than anything that you and I would ever experience. And they tell us not to slander, but respect, not to gossip, but to actually pray. First Timothy 2, Paul says this to a young pastor who's pastoring in a really difficult situation in a potentially oppressive state. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those who are in high positions. That, listen, so that, here's the purpose, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. In other words, here's what he's saying. The most effective, not the only, but the most effective route or method of seeking change in a society is prayer. That's what he's saying. The most effective, not the only, but the most effective method of seeking change in a society is prayer. Well, that's a totally different perspective. That's a totally different perspective. We want to affect change. The main thing we should be doing is praying. At least the first thing we should be doing. Look, we're not called to be legalists or absolutists and say, oh, does the law say we can do that? Are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to do that? Or am I allowed to jump over this fence? Am I allowed to, okay, we got to understand the spirit of the law and we have to abide by the spirit of the law in the best that we can. We're, I'm not saying we're supposed to be absolutists and neither are the apostles. We're not called to be pushover people. We are called to be humble people. We are called, if anything, to be humble people. And if we can't submit to a lower court, or if we can't stand submitting at least to a lower court that'd be government authority with limited authority, why in the world would we think that we would joyfully submit to the highest court who has all authority? If we can't submit to a lower court, we say, well, here's all my reasons. Why in the world would we think that we'd be able to actually submit to the highest heavenly court? who has all authority and reign and rule and control over our lives. Why would we think that we'd be okay with that when we're not even okay with submitting to a lower authority? One of the reasons that we're supposed to submit to government authority is because it helps us submit to God. God puts authority in our life for a reason. It's the same thing with parents and children. Okay, God puts authority in our life for a reason. Part of it, is that it points us to the great authority, the greatest authority, and it helps us submit to Him. 
So is the state's authority binding for Christians? I think we answered that question. Number three, and lastly, when then, when should churches, when should Christians engage in civil disobedience? Is there a time for that? And here's what I'll say. Here's the principle I'm going to give you. When the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, okay? When the state commands what God forbids, God says, don't do something. The state says, no, you have to do it. Or when it forbids what God commands, God says, I want you to do this. And the state says, no, you can't do that. When should we engage in civil disobedience when the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. The state has the authority to preserve the soul. The state rather has the authority to authority to preserve life. It has authority over the preservation of life, over civil affairs. Okay, this, the civil authority boundaries are within civil affairs. The church has the authority over the soul, to preserve the soul and care for the soul. It has the responsibility to obey the scriptures that God has revealed and given through the prophets and the apostles. That is the responsibility and authority of the church. And when the state begins to cross over from civil to spiritual, it has exceeded its rightful boundaries. Are we, are we getting that? When the state has crossed over from civil to spiritual, it has now exceeded its rightful boundaries and its rightful authority. Now listen, God's people have dealt with this for years. I mean, throughout all of history. In Exodus chapter one, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he commands some midwives to kill children that are born to Hebrew women because he doesn't want the Hebrew population growing too much. So he commands them to kill young baby boys. And you know what they do? They say, the king told us to do this, but we're not gonna do it. Why? Because it's completely wrong and immoral. We're not gonna kill kids. And so they disobeyed. Yeah, that's the right decision. That's clearly the right decision. That's a black and white, obvious, clear, biblical issue, right? That's clear. Yeah, absolutely, we're gonna disobey that because we need to obey God and not man. We're not gonna kill kids even though you want us to. In Daniel chapter three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow in worship to this massive golden idol that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Nebuchadnezzar is commanding what God forbids. He's commanding what God forbids. God says, don't have any other gods before me. Don't practice idol worship. And the king of Babylon says, I want you to worship this idol. And so they say, no. And then they say, and we'll suffer whatever consequences you want us to suffer, but we're not gonna do that. We're just not gonna do it. Sorry, we're not gonna do it. We can't do it. In Daniel chapter six, Daniel, I was reading this story to my kids last night. Some of King Darius's satraps, his managers, his governors, they come to him and they hate Daniel. They want to see him out. They want to get in his position. They want his power. They're jealous. And so they say, hey, king, why don't we make a law that no one can, can pray except to you? And the king says, that sounds good. And so he makes that law and he forgets that Daniel prays to the true God. And then he gets sad because Daniel continues to pray to God. He continues to pray to God. And then his governors and satraps and all those guys that go back to the king and they say, oh, Daniel's praying. We got him. 
then he has to face the consequences. But he did not stop praying. In fact, he opened his windows and he let everybody see that he wasn't going to stop praying. Because in that situation, the state then was forbidding what God commanded. Daniel said, I can't obey that. I'm not going to go with that. And I'm not going to even be ashamed about it. So he continued to pray. In Acts 5.29, a verse you may have heard a lot lately, Acts 5.28 through 31, uh, Peter and the apostles are, are preaching. Jesus has risen, the church has been established, and they're preaching, and they are not going to stop preaching. They've been arrested, they got broken out of jail, they continue to preach. The Sanhedrin calls them to stand trial, and the high priest says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. They can't even say Jesus' name. They hate him so much, they can't even say his name. And yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Not only have you not stopped teaching, you've now filled the whole city with this stuff. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. What did God, what did Jesus tell the apostles to do before he ascended to heaven? He says, go preach the gospel, make disciples. So he said, we're not going to stop doing that. We are not going to stop doing that. We must obey God rather than man. God exalted him. Jesus, as at his right hand as leader, pioneer, and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. See, when, when, when the state tells the apostles they can no longer preach the gospel, they say, we're not going to listen to you because no man can bound the gospel. No man can bind the gospel. Peter says here that Jesus actually came and lived and died and rose. And that is the only message. Looking to him in faith is the only way for lost people to come to know God and love God and receive God and receive forgiveness and receive life. That is the only lifeline to humanity. And for us to stop doing that just because you're jealous would be sinful and cowardly on our part, we're not going to stop. So they don't stop. And they continue to face the consequences, but they also continue to rely on God. We see examples of this throughout history. Christians practicing rightfully civil disobedience in totalitarian states where you can't gather at all, where Christianity is illegal. The underground church thrives oftentimes in China, in the Soviet Union pre-1991 or two in all kinds of Asian countries, in all kinds of countries around the world, in North Korea. You think it's legal to gather as a Protestant church in North Korea? It's not. We see this prior to the modern era. In 1662, the government of England passed a Legislation called the Act of Uniformity, where everybody, all the preachers and pastors had to, and the churches had to conform to the standards of the Church of England, and 2,000 nonconformist Puritan ministers were ejected from their pulpits. They no longer were legally allowed to pastor churches. In colonial America, Baptist preachers were imprisoned for being Baptist. Okay, we can look at lots of examples like this. When, when, when these things happen, the church not only has the option, but the responsibility to obey the heavenly king above the earthly king. 
So let's overlay this idea on our present day. When should Christians engage in civil disobedience? When should we? We have to ask that question, be specific and clear on it. Because it's not just whenever we disagree. Okay? We tracking with that? It's not just whenever we disagree or whenever we get really frustrated, frustrated enough to justify civil disobedience. That's not the answer. Let's overlay this on our present day. The state has, over the last month, prohibited gatherings, set attendance restrictions, prohibited then indoor gatherings, just after it re-allowed gathering for the church. It has even got as specific as meddling with how we should worship. Banning, or is it strongly suggesting, it's a little unclear to me, singing, among other things. The question is, is that a legitimate use, exercise of state authority? Is that a legitimate exercise of state authority? Can the, can the state request or require churches not to gather, which is something that God commands? Something that God commands. Here's how we've been thinking through this. If the prohibition is temporary, if the prohibition is broad, in other words, churches aren't being singled out. It also includes synagogues, mosques, other like gatherings. And if the argument is reasonable, public emergency, wartime, public health crisis, not just if we fully agree with it, but if it's within the realm of reason. That's the way we've been thinking through it. At that point, we would say it is legitimate. The prohibition is temporary, not going to last forever. This isn't a fundamental change. If it's broad, other organizations, groups, gatherings are included. And if the argument is reasonable, when the request or requirement no longer is temporary, it is no longer broad, and it is no longer within the realm of reason, then we must follow Peter's lead. We must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than man. Because friends, no man, no state, no institution has the authority to keep the gospel bound. None does. None. So that's our criteria. That's how we've thought through this. As of right now, we are permitted to meet outdoors. Thankfully, we are permitted to meet outdoors. This is legal, what we're doing. Thankfully, we have been offered a space where we can meet and preach and fellowship and build each other up. We are thankful for both of those things. However, I want to say this. I felt it was important to address this because we don't know what will happen next. We don't know what will happen next. We don't know if things will start to slowly get more back to something that resembles normalcy or if things will slowly tick away from that. We just don't know. What we do know is we need to think through biblically what will that look like? How will we respond? How will we respond? How will we think through making a decision? What will the criteria be? What will be most faithful to Jesus Christ and to his word? Whether the day comes where we have to exercise 
that responsibility or not, what we do know is that things are a lot different than they were six months ago and they won't be back to normal, what we consider normal anytime soon. Even if they begin to get better, they won't be back to normal anytime soon. So we must seek to move forward, making the adjustments that we can. Okay, we've made a lot of adjustments, as you can see. If you're a part of our church, before we started meeting here, and you're still a part of the church, you know we've made a lot of adjustments. So we must move forward making the adjustments we can, but ultimately in a way that is faithful to King Jesus. Okay, so I want to end with this. I want to give us a few points to consider for our personal lives for our own hearts as we look outward and forward how are we going to press forward in this season i want to give us some biblical guidance on this and and the first thing i'll say is this we have to move forward in humility we have to move forward in humility first peter 5 5 clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble listen you don't know everything I know some people think like we, we think we kind of really know what's going on. We kind of really have the inside scoop. We really know what the motives are, but we really don't. We really don't. And even if we did, we need to look at each other and realize, man, people have different opinions. They have different perspectives. We have lots of people who aren't at church right now. They're being cautious for different reasons. We need to understand that, be sensitive to that, respectful of that. And when we run into someone with different view on all that's going on, we need to not be quick to tear people down, but be understanding in humility. It doesn't mean we can't have good conversations, but we must be humble toward one another. Clothe yourselves in humility. We all must do what Peter exhorts us to do. Clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. We do not want to be in opposition to God. Number two, we must move forward with resolve. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Look, this, this is the real deal. This is the real deal. We've had a lot of, how should I say it? Kind of the luxuries and comforts of American church stripped away from us. We must move forward with resolve. I mean, the one, one good thing I think this will do for the church at large, we have experienced such little broad-scale persecution in the church in America. And what happens when churches experience persecution is they get weeded out. They get weeded out. The wheat gets separated from the chaff and the weeds get pulled. And I think, though this is not persecution, I think we're experiencing a little bit of that. The one good thing, I think, one of the good things that will come out of this whole fiasco for us, for the church at large, is that the wheat and the chaff will be separated. The wheat and the chaff will be separated. It's tougher to go to church now than it used to be. It's tougher to go to church consistently. It's easy for other stuff to come up and say, well, I'll just go do that. I'll just go do that. I'll just go do that. No big deal. Now, I want to say again, there's some people who it's like, we haven't been at church, we're, we're being careful. I have a weak immune system. My family, you know, they have issue, health issues. I want to be cautious. Okay, that's a different category. That's a different category. We need to be understanding of where different people are at. I'm talking about this lackadaisical, comfort-centric, 
non-priority of church mindset. We need to move forward asking God to rid us of all that stuff. Say, man, I want to move forward, like Paul said, standing side by side with my brothers and sisters for the faith of the gospel, for the work of Jesus Christ, like I'm going to be faithful in this. Right, this is the real deal. It's, gonna, it's difficult to go to church right now, more difficult than it used to be, and it may get more difficult and maybe scary in the future. We must press forward with resolve. We're going to be faithful to Jesus and not our own comforts or priorities. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Okay, men, that verse is written for you, so you need to lead well in this. You need to lead well in this. There is a verse that says, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, and be strong. Now, write it down, put it on your bathroom window, stop making excuses, take your family, lead them to church, lead them in Bible study, lead them in spiritual growth. That's your job. Do it. That's your job. Take responsibility for your family and obey Jesus. If we're going to move forward together in unity and with strength, men, we, you must lead in that way. You must. Humility, resolve. Thirdly, tenderheartedness towards one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, that verse is self-explanatory, isn't it? We must, we must look at each other and understand, yeah, we're different, but I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna be tenderhearted. If we wrong each other, I'm going to seek to forgive you even if I feel like you don't deserve it because I didn't deserve the forgiveness that Jesus gave me, but he gave it in full. And so now I can give it in full. Lastly, we must move forward with God-sized expectations. We must move forward with God-sized expectations. I thought this was going to be a location where we came together and kind of just were able to get by for the season, but it hasn't been. With all the wonkiness, we've grown. People have gotten saved, met Jesus. People are getting discipled. We've grown a lot. There's been... We, we, I mean, we've had, we have a place here where, other, where pastors can come from other churches and get fed and renewed. Churches that aren't meeting or they're on vacation where, where people have come and said, man, I haven't been part of a church for years. All the stuff going on. I just wanted to get back in a church and you guys were one of the only ones open. So I'm here. I don't really know what to do, but I'm here. Amen. We're so glad to have you. Like God has done work in the last two months that have totally exceeded my expectations. And of course, I'm a human and I messed up and I don't trust God as I should. And I don't look to God and say, I trust what you're going to do and I trust how you're going to work and I'm expecting God-sized things from you. All right, so I've had to adjust my heart and my thinking and I want to ask you to do the same. We must adjust our way of thinking. Say, God, I expect you to do God things. I expect you to do God things. We must have God-sized expectations. And you know what? Those are big expectations because... Our God is a big God, isn't he? Our God is a big God. So we must have big expectations. So church, look, I hope this has been helpful. I probably went over my time. I felt it was necessary to revisit these issues. And I want to say this too. If you want to chat after service, we can connect, we can chat, we can meet, we can talk through whatever you want to talk through. No problem with that. There's more I could have covered, but we need to end there. So I hope that was helpful. I'm going to invite Dana and the team uh, back up and Alyssa back up. And we're going to finish with one song. We would encourage you to stick around and 
commune, fellowship, hang out with one another and encourage one another. Father God, we thank you for uh, our time together this morning that we can gather together and read your word and study your word and understand uh, your word and who you are, God, and what you command and require of us. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to move forward faithfully uh, in this season. With all the strangeness going on, we pray that you'd put steel in our spines and help us to move forward with courage, but also that you put love in our heart and help us to move forward with, with tender hearts, with love for one another, with admiration for one another, seeing the best in each other and not instantly seeing the worst. We pray that you'd help us to do that well and faithfully for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of our great God. Amen.